called his disciples. He had been teaching, he had been performing miracles, he had been uh, talking with the high priests and the, I mean, the, uh, uh, the uh, Sadducees, the, the Pharisees, all the um, different people. Lots of things have been going on in Jesus' life. And so he turns to his, his disciples, his friends, and he says to him, them, Who are people saying that I am? And the disciples respond. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're a prophet. I'm sure there were many other things, which is uh, an interesting thing to know that the people, the disciples, were paying attention to what the people were thinking about Jesus. But then Jesus turns and he says to them, narrowing the question, but who do you? Who do you say that I am? And that has been and continues to be the greatest question that has ever been asked. Who is Jesus to you? Now this morning, before we get further into the message, I want you to participate in the message with me this morning. And I want to ask you to do one thing. Uh, some of you have a notebook with Colossians on it with a pen, and you're taking notes. Some of you use uh, an iPhone or an iPad. But here's what I want you to do, whether it's a pen or, uh, or a digital device. I want you to write down this question in the sense, in the framework, as if Jesus were standing just with you and only you, no one else around, no other expectations from anybody else, just you and Jesus. And he turns and asks you the question, who do you say that I am? And for the next 30 seconds, I want you to jot down who Jesus is to you. Some of you are thinking, I need more paper. And some of you are looking at it with a blank stare. Back to the scene with the disciples when Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And then he narrows the question, who do you say that I am? Peter pipes up. He says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. There's a very significant contrast to who people were saying and who Peter says Jesus is. In our day and time, there are people who are talking about who Jesus is, and then there needs to be a contrast of who we say, as a believer, Jesus is. And if there's ever a group of people that get Jesus right, it should be his church. Now today, we're going to continue through Colossians. We're going to look at uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. Last week, we looked at Paul's prayer. Remember the prayer we prayed last week? How many of you prayed that prayer for me this past week? Thank you, thank you, thank you. How many of you prayed it for yourself, for other people? The prayer that says, I want to be increasingly spiritually smart. I want my life to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in obedience. I want to have the power of God in my character, 
of patience. Anybody experience patience this week? And do well with it. It's okay, we've got another opportunity this coming week. We can do it. Long-suffering, thankfulness, joy, the power of the character of Christ. Now, we're going to unpack a passage of Scripture. So what I want you to do this morning uh, is to take off your watch. Turn off your watch. Turn off your phone. And just pay attention to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus that Paul unpacks in these verses. Paul proves that Jesus is incomparable in four different positions and four different works. So the title of the message this morning is Only Jesus. So before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the truth that we have sang that you are holy forever. That you are above all dominions and powers, all positions. God, I thank you for this time of the service where we can come and open your word. That you can teach us in all wisdom and all truth. And God, I pray this morning that the familiar things that we hear about you and your work would not be familiar but that you would give us a fresh understanding, a deeper understanding, and in some ways maybe a more applicable way of understanding your supremacy and your sufficiency. God, I pray that you would help us by the power of your Spirit to answer truthfully and fully who you are in our lives. Take a minute and pray for the person in front of you, behind you, beside you, and for yourself that God would speak this morning and there would be a response. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. In my Bible, this section is titled, The Incomparable Christ. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or in heaven. That is chocked full of the truth of Jesus. And we're just going to go straight up until the first football game, if it's okay with you. Four different scenarios, four different aspects I want to look at this morning. The first one is this, is that Jesus is the one and only Savior. 
Verse 13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Now think about this for just a second. From the beginning, from Genesis chapter 3 until now, what has been man's biggest problem? Has it been that he hasn't had enough? Has it, been, has it been that he hasn't had purpose or that he hasn't had enough to make a living? What, what has been man's biggest problem? Man's biggest problem always has been sin. And the reason it's always been and always will be the man's biggest problem is that we do not have it within us to solve the problem. It's a problem that can never be solved by a philosopher or, or even some kind of teacher. This is what Paul's talking about to the church at Colossae. It cannot be solved by working harder or trying to do better things or to stop doing bad things. Sin is a huge issue without a human solution. And sin has lasting consequences. And one of the greatest lasting consequences is separation from God. Forever. And unless there is a problem solver to this sin issue, it leads to death spiritually and eternally. I know it's a great way to start the message, right? From the time of Adam and Eve until now, sin has been present in the world and in the lives of people in the world. And so the simple truth to start the message is this. Sinners need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot fix our sin problem. And so Paul is reminding the Colossian church, knowing more, following this idea, trying this new way of thinking, that doesn't work. And it'll leave you empty and in the same place that you were before. The only solution to the sin problem is Jesus. Paul in verses 13 and 14 uses four different practical but very helpful understandings of the actions of Jesus and our salvation. If you're a believer here, let these truths sink in with humility and thankfulness and joy. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, hear these actions as a gift of hope and love to you, as an offering from God to you. Four actions. The first one is, He rescued us from the domain of darkness. Paul says that he rescued us. Now, whenever we think about the word rescue, what comes to mind? Think about some examples of rescue. Maybe you think of this Coast Guard with the, with the guy coming down from the helicopter. Maybe you think of like a, a fireman running into a building to rescue. Maybe you think of like a military rescue. How many of you have been in one of these conversations where somebody's talking and you can't get away and you're just wishing somebody would rescue you? <laughs> Maybe that one helps. What does rescue mean? 
what are we talking about when we say rescue? Well, the, well, the definition in the dictionary is to set free from the confinement of danger. To be rescued, to be set free from the confinement of danger. So in the Greek, what Paul is talking about to the Colossians, in regards to this, you're going to be set free from the confinement of danger. You're going to be rescued, but he's also talking about defending and protecting when we're rescued. I'm defending you against danger, and I'm protecting you against danger. I'm delivering you from predictable devastation that's about to come. Now think about it. We could not defend ourselves. We could not protect ourselves. And so we had to have someone come and rescue us. To deliver us out of our confinement of danger. And what did he rescue us from? Paul says the domain of darkness. Not only have we been rescued by Jesus out of the domain of hell, that is our uh, our trajectory and consequence, we've also been uh, rescued from the power of sin, the power of the evil one, even the power of the illusion of ourselves. Paul says we've been rescued from darkness. We all know what darkness brings. Uh, Darkness brings fear. Darkness brings uncertainty. Darkness messes up clarity. And Paul says that Jesus has rescued us out of uncertainty to give us certainty. Jesus has rescued us from hell and rescued us from the power of the evil one. The second saving action of Jesus. It says that Jesus has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And in light, we have security. We have clarity. We have direction. The picture Paul is painting here, the word picture that Paul is painting here in this context, is that of a jail cell. That when we are in a jail cell, we are confined. We are bound. We are on this side of the door, out of freedom, but in bondage, limited, confined. But once we walk through this door, which is made way only by Jesus, we are transferred from bondage into freedom. From confinement to freedom. And so Paul tells the believers at Colossae, you have been transferred because of what you believed in Jesus and his rescue mission. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and the kingdom of my beloved son. It's this picture of Paul writing to the church at Philippi when he says, we are no longer citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. We've been transferred to his beloved son. And here's the great truth. God always brings us out so that he might bring us in. He brings us out of bondage into a relationship with him, into the light. So Jesus rescues us, he transfers us, and the third action of Jesus, that in Jesus we have redemption. He redeemed us. Now, growing up as a kid, I've heard this word my whole life. Been in church my whole life. It's a good churchy word. But what does it mean? 
This word redeem has a Latin root, meaning to buy back. Meaning that freedom from any possession or bondage or limitations has been purchased by someone or something in order for you to experience the freedom. The word in the Greek has this idea of to be loosed from that of a payment. In the theological context, it means delivery. It means freedom from sin. How? Through a payment. Through a purchase. In Old Testament, we see that there was a a payment for the penalty of sin, the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices. And in New Testament, that's why Jesus says he came to give his life as a what? As a ransom, as a payment for many. The payment, the price of redemption, was Jesus on the cross. So through our faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, Jesus has paid for our redemption. He has bought us back. Redemption and ransoms. If you've seen a movie, if you've read a book, you know that ransom reveals value. And so think about this. God looks at you and me and says, I value you so much that I will pay for your freedom with the life of my beloved son. Who is Jesus to you? And the question we also need to ask is, who are we to Jesus? The fourth action is this. In Jesus, we have forgiveness of sin. He says redemption and the forgiveness of sin. Paul puts them together. Ephesians 1, 7 says this. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace. I love this word in the Greek and the context of the Greek, this word for forgiveness. It means to cancel a debt, to send it away. And so think about this. When Jesus purchases us, when he buys us back, he cancels our debt against us. Jesus will never bring your sins up against you. Why? Because they've been sent away. God's forgiveness of sinners is an act of his grace. None of us, none of us, deserve that forgiveness speaks to the heart and mercy of god only in these two expressions redemption and forgiveness justice and mercy are combined at the cross the saving act of jesus hebrews nine twenty two. without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness but I want to make sure that we're all understanding about this payment for forgiveness. Forgiveness is not an excuse for us to sin, but rather it is an encouragement for obedience. We can't have this mindset of thinking that I'm just going to keep on sinning because God's going to forgive me. The payment was way too high for that kind of attitude. It was the purchase with the blood of Jesus. 
So when we talk about Jesus, when we think about our Savior, Paul reminds us of the depth and profound person and work of Jesus. But he's not done. Jesus is also the one and only creator. Listen to verses 15 through 17. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now everybody repeat this next phrase with me. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now the false teachers and the philosophers had this really weird concept of creation and physical matter and tangible things that they thought all things tangible were evil so they even thought that jesus god in a body would be evil so they put it out it wasn't in their thought thought process and the results of that are tragic because if you think that your bodies are evil you're either going to do one or two things you're going to do everything to enjoy the evilness Or you're going to do everything you can to stop the evilness. And in turn, it's all about you. So this section, Paul talks about the relationship to creation. He says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn does not mean uh, a time, but it means a place or a status. Importance. Firstborn. Some of you really like being firstborn. Right? You're first. It's a status. But we have to remember this. Jesus is not a created being. He's an eternal God. Although Jesus was born, it's not the first time he was on the scene. Paul used this word image, that that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Image means the exact representation or revelation that's why Jesus was say, able to say this in John chapter 14, verse 9. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I like how the message says it. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, not so much a glimpse. Jesus is this one-of-a-kind God expression who exists at the very heart of the Father, and he's made him plain as day to us. The second relationship with creation is Paul says that he created all things, all things created by Jesus. Now, one author said this, it makes perfect sense that if Jesus created everything, it's no wonder that the winds and waves obeyed him, the diseases and death fled from him, for he is master of it all. He created all things. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was was God, and he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This includes things on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him. Paul uses another phrase, all things were created for him. Now, now this, is, this is crazy important. Everything exists in him, for him, and through him. Think about that. Simply put, it's all about Jesus. Your life, your relationships, your pursuits, your motives, everything, everything is about Jesus. Now, I want us to think for a second. Actually, I want us to dream for a second. What if tomorrow morning every believer in this room woke up 
with the focus that it's all about Jesus. Every minute of every day today. And not just this church, but every believer at every church this morning woke up saying and praying and asking, God, make it all about Jesus today. Think we experience anything different? Now watch this. For, for centuries, Greek philosophers had taught this, this, this thinking that was swirling around the church there. That there was a need for a primary cause, there was an instrumental cause, and a final cause. And this primary cause was kind of like the plan, the instrumental cause is the power, and the final cause is the purpose. And so Paul is using their language, using their, uh, their understanding, and puts Jesus in the middle of it. And says this, when it comes to creation, Jesus is the primary cause. He planned it. And Jesus is the instrumental cause because he produced it. And Jesus is the final cause because he did it for his pleasure and his glory. Not only that, not all things were created, not only was all things created by him, through him, and for him, Paul says at the end of it, all things are held together by him. He holds all things together. Now, I looked up some really cool stuff this week. And here's some kind of the cool stuff. Have you ever just, have you ever just paused and watched nature? Have you ever thought and stopped to consider, like, why the waves only come a certain far up? How the winds work? What the winds do? When the rains come? Where they go? Why it's cold? Why it gets hot. I think if we just stop and pay attention. I mean, think about even just our systems inside our bodies. The digestive system, the nervous system, how our brains and minds are just so complicated that we can't figure them out. You can't figure out people in your house's brains either. All these systems, all this nature, all this stuff. And guess who holds it together? Jesus. And he's not like trying to juggle it. He's got it. He's got it. Paul Brand, in his book, The Gift of Pain, talks about the intricacies of your eyeball and how many millions of nerve ends in there that, that can that can spot and, and and notice microscopic things that get in your eyes. And then the microscopic thing tells your brain to, to blink and water and flush it out. Who does that? Jesus. All things, all things are held together by Jesus. I could go on and on, but it's just fascinating to me. The way the earth's tilted, the distance from the sun, the hydrogen, the, the nitrogen, uh, the, uh, the, all the different gases. If it wasn't certain numbers, we would either freeze or explode in, in a fireball. Jesus holds all things together, including your life and mine. The heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Psalm 19, 1. Who is Jesus to you?
He's not just some cool dude that lived in history. He's Savior, He's Creator, and He's the sustainer of all things. And to make Jesus anything less than God is to dethrone Him and rob Him of His deserved glory. Paul's not finished. Jesus is the one and only head of the church. Many different images and metaphors of the church, the bride of Christ, children of God, people of God, the temple of God, but also the body of Christ. And Paul says in church there that it's not the philosophers, it's not the false teachers that are the head of the church, it's Jesus that is head of the church. Some of us have even said this, would you just use your head? What happens when you don't use your head? Everything falls apart. Same as it is with Christ. And just so we know, when you and I surrender to Jesus and his work on the cross, immediately we become part of the body of Christ with Jesus as our head, the source, the leader, the one who dictates what the body does. I'm not the head of the church at Grace Community Church. The elders are not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of this church. He's the head of all Jesus-following churches. Paul communicates very strongly is the beginning of the firstborn of the dead, so he himself hath come to first place in everything. Scholars and commentators say this is the crux of not only this passage, but maybe even the entire book, that he himself will come to have first place in everything. This word first place in the Greek is translated preeminence. It's the only place it's used in the New Testament. That he becomes first place in everything, in all things, in every area. I like what one author said. If Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, he cannot be Lord at all. Paul closes his argument in this passage with his relationship to the Father. In verse 19, it says it for the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Fullness means the sum total of all the divine powers, all the divine authority, all the divine attributes in Jesus. The fullness was to dwell. Dwells translated permanently in Jesus. And then he gives this statement that through him to reconcile all things to himself made peace with God through the blood of of the cross. So the question this morning, how can a holy God ever be reconciled to a sinful man? You can answer it. Jesus. Only Jesus. Three or four times in these 20 verses, Paul is talking about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus and his work on the cross. Christ's incarnation, him coming to the earth, being born, didn't do it. His teaching didn't do it. Living a perfect life didn't do it. What did it? The cross. It was the cross. Verse 20, he, Jesus, made peace through the blood of the cross. Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Creator, the Head of the Church, and the beloved fullness of the Father. Going back to the question at the very beginning, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus 
what would you say if somebody came to you and says, who is Jesus to you? Some of you would say, I, ha- I just I got four great points I'm going to give you. I just heard them this past week. <laughs> who is Jesus to you? Think about it. You and Jesus. And he says to you, who do you say that I am? And do I have first place in all things? Some of us are still in this illusion that God doesn't know everything about our lives. That he doesn't see all these different areas. That we think we're hiding from him. And two words we don't talk about very much in the church today is this word conviction. And that's what I want to ask you to pray for. God, convict me out of your gentleness and your kindness and your grace and your love for me. Convict me and show me where you do not have first place in my life. Is it a relationship? Is it at work? Is it a motive I have? Where? Show me. Help me answer this question. Who is Jesus to me? If you're here this morning and you've never personally understood the importance and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus, this morning is a gift to you to know that Jesus loves you, that God has given Jesus as a ransom to transfer you from the domain of darkness to light, to pull you out of that and to pull you into a relationship, a loving relationship giving you clarity and certainty and security that you've never had before. And for the rest of us, it's an opportunity for us to answer the question, in every area of our life, who is Jesus to me? Let me pray for us. God, I pray for anyone here, anyone watching online, anyone that will watch this later, that you would convict them and comfort them with the truth of who you are. That you love them so much, that you value them so much, that you are willing to send Jesus to pay, to pay the ransom, to set them free. God, I pray for each one of us here this morning. By the power of your Spirit, Convict us. Comfort us. God, help us. Help us know areas and thoughts and motives where you're not first. And we know it. Remind us that you've empowered us to see a difference. God, you know all week I have prayed I am so inadequate to talk about how awesome you are. There's no way. So Holy Spirit, please do in the hearts and minds of the people here this morning only what you can do to show people just how awesome you are. And may we fall deeper and deeper in love with you. Give us a desire to share that love with the world.
In Jesus' name, amen.